supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. And no nation which expects to be the leader of other nations can expect to stay behind in this race for space. Right here in Florida by Kelly Brought himself. Check it out. Go to broughtsbeardcare.com. Uh, got beard soap, beard oil, our signature blend that Chris is showing right there. That one is made specially for us. You, by purchasing that, you're not only supporting Kelly, you're also supporting us. And we really appreciate you for that. Check him out. Um, use promo code Three Beards with a capital B. You're going to save 20% off your order. It's also sponsored by Nanny Cakes and. Chris's swear jar. We've instituted that to help him try to watch his mouth. So, yeah, we're up to so, 30 cents so far. Yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, he's self sponsoring the program. <laughs> so, at this time, we would really like to welcome our guest of the evening, Jason Gerald, author of Ages of the Giants A Cultural History of the Tall Ones in Prehistoric America. Uh, him and his wife, Sarah Farmer, they wrote this book. Um, Jason, welcome to the show. And Mark Eddy, our secret agent booking man who helps us get all this stuff, he's come to help us as well. So welcome, both of you. Thank you for having me. I I didn't realize you had a swear jar. Do you do you guys take PayPal for that? Because <laughs> yeah. I, well, no, that's that's not for you. That's that you guys oh. are fine. He has, oh, he's, yeah. yeah, he's we started this uh, kind of started today actually he, he just he there's sometimes like he just goes on a long tirade that you know makes all of us you know our eyes start watering just from the string of i didn't even know you could group some of those words in the combinations he was finding so we wow. started a swear jar yeah I, I was yeah there was different combinations I, I was like i didn't i don't think i've ever heard those words strung together before and it was yeah it was pretty pretty impressive so language it's an art form yes he, yeah he gets Swersive. I'm not sure what you call it. You know, this, but yeah, <laughs> Swerzeely. I don't know. <laughs> God. Uh, so, man, so, you know, Mark brought this up to us, and I listened to the show when you were on with him and Barbara on night. Yeah, and that, I, man, I was just, I, I got fascinated as we're starting to get with some of the topics of giants. And, I mean, we've had a few people on. I've talked about, you know, Gary Wayne. We've talked about Nephilim and the Giants, and it was kind of a perfect segue to bring you in here because now we here we have. There's that mystery of where did they go? You know, they were there. The flood came. They've disappeared, and then there's always reports of around the world these things, different areas. These are being found. Well, here we are into the New World, the Northern Hemisphere, and we have these giant burial mounds and stuff, and we're wondering. You know, as we go into this part where this might have been a possible location, but it's also this might have just been, as like I said, if you, got, you guys have done your research, and that's where I want to bring you in to see, you know, how yours take fits into that model or if it's something like you have a whole different break off in that. So I'll let you take it from there. 
Okay, well, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the subject. Um, I the the field of what people are are referring to as the ancient giants. It really is a type of a spectrum. On one end of that spectrum, you have the most incredible, sensational statements you can imagine. You'll you'll find people who claim that that the remains in these burial mounds in North America. That would be the host not doing his job in science. Oh my god! Gone. I apologize for this. Wow. Continue. <laughs> is it? Is, wait, wait. Isn't it time for a swear chain when something? Oh, like that happens? My, oh my god! god. Craig. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I'm a professional. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, sorry about that. Continue. Well, <laughs> first of all, you know my work is is it's different than than the majority of the research projects that are out there on the subject. Um, the 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 burial mound here in North America, where the large skeletons have been found. Many of these mounds are just over 2,000 years old. And an equal number of those mounds were built within the last 1,000 years. So we are certainly not talking about uh, a pre-Diluvian or pre-flood culture when it comes to the, the mounds here in the eastern woodlands, places like Ohio, West Virginia, um, where the, the large skeletal remains have been found. And a big part of our research project, we were really walking in the footsteps of a Native American philosopher named Vine Deloria Jr. And Vine believed that, that these beings existed and he consulted the Native American elders in his time. And the Native American elders explained to him that in fact, the tall ones, which is what they called them, had existed among the Native American people generally in ancient times. In other words, they were widespread among all the tribes. And that's exactly what we found in our research project because our goal was to go beyond the history books and the local newspaper accounts. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of those that you can find on archive.org. You can find them in old newspapers and press clippings of farmers and and other types of people who would find these skeletons in the mounds and in the ohio valley and other places in north america that they would report as being of gigantic size and our goal was to discover whether or not there was any real scientifically documented proof that there was actually something to this phenomenon and and what we found is that there is, there, there's an actual, there is something to discover here, but it is not what most people who are interested in the subject today seem to believe that it is. Because- I, Yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry, I was, I was gonna ask you a question, but I didn't mean to interrupt there. Well, questions are good. No, I was just, it was one, I'm, I'm gonna absolutely butcher this. I mean, so you're probably gonna help me out. I mean, cause it's like, it is a long Indian name. It is, is that the, Rananga with Tawanaka, I think is how you said. Yeah, you're talking about one of the legends of the a legend of, of a battle uh, with giants, and 
uh, what what people need to understand when it comes to the legends about Indians having wars with tribes of giants is that it was a common myth that every tribe handed down in different forms and the names of the giants in the myth change based on which linguistic group we're talking about. So you could say that, you know, for example, in Christianity, we have a lot of events in the New Testament, which different cultures have handed down and, and they may explain it differently in their own language. You know, it's a, it's a common, it's a common motif of a battle with giants but what the other side of that story is that most people are unfamiliar with is that this is a story that was told in the same setting that, you know, people would warn their children not to wander too far from a camp because a giant could kidnap them and eat them. Wow. You know, gi giants were a, a common mythic motif among Native American people, just as they were other people all around the world. And when it comes to the, the actual reality of what was found in the ancient mounds, um, the Adena and Hopewell culture, that's the name of the cultures who buried these large remains in the mounds in the Ohio Valley, date to between 500 BC and about 450 AD. And uh, the, the bones that were found in the mounds, usually when when they are large skeletons measure somewhere on a scale of seven to eight feet in stature. All of the accounts and reports of skeletons measuring nine and 10 and even 12 feet that you find in uh, old press clippings and local histories, uh, you can debunk most of those accounts as soon as you look for the primary source for the excavation. But in the Ohio Valley, in the 20th century, we have a number of archaeologists, Don Dragu from the University uh, uh, from the University of Carnegie. You have William S. Webb from the University of Kentucky. You have George Fisher, who did research in Pennsylvania. All of these archaeologists did record skeletons falling along that spectrum that they found in the mounds of this culture. And even in some instances, they published photographs of the remains in their own excavation reports that we've acquired. Um, the, the people uh, who participated in these cultures along the Ohio River were generally, even the, the people of regular stature, were more powerfully built than people who live today. Their bones were very thick. They had very large jaw bones, uh, very large teeth, and the physical anthropologists who studied the bones wrote about the marked eminences on the bones for the attachment of powerful muscles. So this was a population of, of generally powerfully built individuals with recurring instances of people who were seven feet in stature and above. The the tallest skeleton, the largest skeleton that we have found verified in a primary excavation report comes from a report that we only recently obtained from Southern Ohio, uh, an archeologist excavating an archaic burial site measures two femurs from a skeleton that if his measurements are accurate in the report would have been probably exceeding eight feet in stature but that is the largest 
uh, of these skeletons that that I personally have ever seen verified by a primary archaeological report. Now, just to kind of stop you right there for a little bit. Um, what is, in your opinion, like kind of a theory on where the divergent came between the normal, you know, it's like normal, but you know, Indian tribes, you know, where the statues, because they're typically somewhere between five, six feet tall, and then you have this race at seven to eight feet tall. So where, where did this sudden, you know, expansive growth come from for this group mm-hmm. that didn't translate to the rest in the area? Well, that's a that's a good question, but um, even many of the skeletons that did not reach even seven feet in stature, the the regular population. It's an interesting thing that one of the archaeologists who excavated the majority of the Adena mounds in the Ohio Valley, William S. Webb, partnered with a physical anthropologist named Charles Snow to study all of the surviving skeletons of the Adena people. And they wrote in their literature about the, the frequency with which Adena males and many of the females were six feet in stature, six feet three inches in stature. Uh, Don Dragu, who was a later archaeologist that confirmed the tall ones from an excavation in West Virginia, also wrote about how even the base population had people that were uh, commonly over six feet in height. So, you know, this phenomenon was probably more widespread than the skeletons that we were able to measure simply because of the practice of cremation. Most of the burials were cremated. The bones were destroyed. In fact, the majority of the dead from these cultures were cremated. In some of the larger Hopewellian mounds in southern Ohio, there are many hundreds of individuals who were cremated and their ashes scattered in the same mound. Hmm. So we really have no idea how common this phenomenon was in the base population. But one thing that we certainly do know, and this is a lot of the evidence for this, uh, is what's going to be in the second volume of our series of books. I've spent two years collecting uh, the, the evidence for what I'm about to say. Uh, these people were 100% genetically Native Americans. And there have been DNA tests that have been performed on literally hundreds of mound builder skeletons from these cultures. In several cases, uh, skeletons that did possess the unique physical features that prove that these are uh, Native American people. And besides that, in places like southern Ontario and along the Atlantic coast, genetic anthropologists and linguistic scholars have joined forces to actually associate this culture with specific tribes. For example, we know that the Ojibwa ancestors were among the mound builders. We know that the Shawnee ancestors were among the mound builders. We know that many of the Siouan-speaking tribes were among the mound builders. And when you come up through history and, and you get to the 1700s and the 1800s, If you read closely into the historical texts, you'll find that the first Europeans to encounter those linguistic groups often wrote about the the giant people among them. In fact, there are just as many accounts of European people encountering living tall ones among the Algonquian and Siouan-speaking people as there are ancient accounts of large skeletons from uh, these more ancient sites. So 
there's never really a point in history where the tall ones vanish. Uh, it's a it's a unique feature of Native American heritage. The real mystery is why. Why uh, why did this sort of optimal genetic expression manage to find its way down through prehistory and all the way into historic times among this people? Hey, uh, Jason, I, I have a question. Uh, you know, you're living within easy driving distance of where all the Kanawha Valley mounds were located and, you know, the Bureau of Ethnology uh, reports 5 and 12. Uh, elaborate on like this 60 mile long uh, necropolis. Oh, sure. Well, yeah, it's, you know, there, there's, it's really fascinating reading uh, about all the mounds that line both sides of the uh, river from Charleston uh, to uh, Point Pleasant. Um, you, you, uh, what made this area so special? Uh, because it seems like there is a really high concentration of giants found in this small location. Sure. Um, well, in my book, I, we have a, a large section on, on the area you're talking about. Uh -huh. And what happens is in the late 1800s, the Smithsonian you never trust the United States government to do anything right, especially if it has anything to do with ancient history. Um, if you want a great example of how badly the United States government handles everything that we give it power to do, you can just look at what the Smithsonian did in the late 1800s in the Ohio Valley, because at that point, the Eastern Mound Division completely annihilated hundreds of the most important Adena Hopewell burial mounds with reckless abandon. Uh, we have no idea exactly how many mounds they destroyed. And in many instances, they reported the discoveries in the mounds with the word rubbish. So we don't have any, we have no way to know specifically which arrowheads or spear points or potteries were found in the mounds, which for people like me, that's how we identify a culture. We need to have access to the artifacts, then we can date the mounds. But one thing the Smithsonian did manage to do, what, uh, especially here in Charleston, West Virginia, along the Canal River, where they destroyed 50 Adena burial mounds and surveyed somewhere between eight and 10 circular hinges, circular sun temples constructed by the Adena people. One thing that they were able to do here was record numerous large skeletons from the Adena Mounds. In fact, one of the largest Adena skeletons on record was discovered at the Great Smith Mound in Charleston by a Smithsonian agent named P.W. Norris. And uh, he measures the skeleton in the Smithsonian report as around seven, seven feet and six inches in length, I believe. Uh, in another uh, unpublished account, Norris wrote uh, that the skeleton might have been as tall as eight feet, but that's not in the official report. 
and there were several other skeletons from the same mound which were too badly damaged to give an exact measurement but you can tell from the language used in the report that they were extremely large and this was this was the case for many of the mounds here the adena culture built burial mounds on both sides of the Kanawha river at, at modern south charleston in west virginia and it was probably because the river was here because the ancient native americans held the same cosmological scheme in their religious rituals and in their conceptions of the divine that modern native americans do and in that cosmology an a, an important body of water such as a river or a lake or an ocean is a gateway to the underworld and in the underworld dwells a being usually known as the great serpent and it is from the great serpent that the shamans and priests can learn the secrets of immortality and healing in some versions of the tradition the souls of the dead travel through the underworld on their journey uh, to join the ancestors in the realm above and that is why whether it's along the ohio river or even uh, ancient burials in the st lawrence seaway uh, that far north ancient native americans would construct these sacred sites near important bodies of water now, well, what's your theory cool. on that you know about why the smithsonian you know has taken such an interest in ensuring that none of this survives I mean, because this to me myself this seems like something that you know i i you got the theories of this just you know this throws a really big issue into darwin you know theory of darwin you know that this this derails that so they can't you know can't have that i mean that's we don't even want to think about this so what's your biggest leading theory that you your wife you know other people in your field have come to like we really think this might be the leading cause for why the smithsonian cannot have this stuff come out well the leading cause is actually on record um this what we're what we're dealing with is not a modern cover-up what the smithsonian is doing today is towing a party line that has been in place for well over a hundred years. The actual cover-up happened in the early 1900s, and I can explain. Um, it may be best if I just review the whole history of this situation and lay it out there. Oh, sure. Uh, sure. So in the 1800s, the Smithsonian launched a massive program desecrating thousands of ancient graves all across the United States, looking for uh, artifacts and remains and in the Ohio Valley that included the burial mounds containing these large skeletal remains and at first the Smithsonian agents simply reported what they found uh, they measured the skeletons we have accounts of Smithsonian agents measuring the skeletons by the femur so the argument that they didn't know how to properly measure the bones is a fraud I've heard that argument you know, of course, I could believe that a government agent would not know how to properly measure, but in this case, we know they did. Um, so the Smithsonian recorded these discoveries. They found multitudes of large skeletons in the mounds. But what happens is in 1910, mark that date, 1910, 
an individual named Ailes Herdlichka became the head of the Department of Anthropology at the Smithsonian. And the Department of Anthropology also was in charge of curating all of the skeletal remains that have been found by the Eastern Mound Division in the late 1800s. And what's important about Ailes Herdlichka is he was an outspoken and prominent and very influential member of an organization called the American Eugenics Society. And the American Eugenics Society uh, at that time was promoting a theory of Caucasian racial supremacism throughout the United States. And they, at a certain point, uh, because it was partnered with powerful families like the Carnegie family and the Rockefeller family and the Ford family, at a certain point, they were able to influence government policy. And that's why we had in the early 20th century, we had all these marriage laws and forced sterilization laws, um, all these eugenics based laws that were designed to create what in their minds was a more pure uh, racial composition for the United States population. And one of the groups that they had targeted for complete extermination was the Native American people. Now, what's important to bear in mind about American eugenics is, is it is impossible to understand this concept without going into European eugenics, because eugenics was actually born in Europe. In And since the mid-1800s, the European eugenicists, uh, as evidence of the supremacy of their own race, they pointed back to the fact that large skeletons had been found in Bronze Age European burial mounds. So when you hear stories about giants being found in ancient European burial mounds, you're talking about the same evidence that the first European and American eugenicists relied on to support their own theory of racial supremacy. And so for all of these extremely large skeletons to be found in the mounds of the ancestral Native Americans was a real challenge to the theories of this international eugenics cult. And Ailes Herdlichka, when he became the head of the Department of Anthropology at the Smithsonian, launched the policy of denial for the first time. He became the first person to deny the existence of the remains. Uh, he publicly denied the existence of the remains. When he did interviews, he would bring up the giants just to explain that they'd never actually been found. But Herdlichka was a part of a purge of ancient Native American history that was being done at the time in order to justify this sort of arcane uh, pseudoscience that was taking over the United States and for some time dominated our political life because the politicians were completely on board with it. At a certain point, the United States Department of Agriculture had partnered with the Carnegie family to begin constructing gas chambers in public in the United States. And the, the goal was to use these eventually to get rid of all of the undesirables. So, uh, oh wow, I didn't know anything about that part. That's great. Yeah, there's an entire postscript at the end of, of our book uh, that covers the entire history of eugenics. And we show with several, uh, in several instances, in their own words, we're using people like Madison Grant, Houston Stewart Chamberlain, and Hitler's own eugenicists. 
we show in their own words that the existence of a race of ancient giants in their own genetic ancestry was the integral pillar of their belief system. So if you begin to find skeletal remains in the history of uh, races that you're seeking to classify as inferior, then that evidence becomes problematic. And then as now, uh, People with an agenda have tried to use science in order to influence the government to, in, to implement policies that, that they find desirable. I mean, you can look at how global warming is being used today as an excuse for population reduction. It's Absolutely. no different. It's no different than that. And so what happened is these eugenicists were responsible for the loss of the tall ones from history. And then in more recent times, because so many writers on the subject have connected these remains with concepts like the Nephilim or ancient aliens, the archaeologists today have had a knee-jerk reaction to the information without even really taking a really good, solid look at it. And that is the reason, as I see it, in the situation that we have today. So a quick question. So quick question. Why do you, how do you feel this whole race of tall people was wiped out did they just die off how do you how do you feel is there any evidence to co collaborate on how they were how they died or they mm -hmm. just went extinct what is the um information on that they didn't the, the disper they, dispersal theory they the i can tell you this there are hundreds of accounts of these large remains from the Adena Hopewell mounds, which date to between 2,500 years ago and about 1,500 years ago. But the mound builder cultures in different forms persisted from that time period all the way up to European contact. And there are just as many large skeletons in the more recent mounds. In fact, one of the gigantic skeletons that people on the internet have called everything from a survivor of Atlantis to an ancient Celt actually was only buried a few hundred years ago and was found with Spanish trade goods. So they, the, the tall ones did not disappear. And in fact, there are native American people living today who still possess traces of this anthropology. And some of them are athletes. You can, I can give you guys a wonderful example. Um, there's a, a man with an Iroquois heritage who died in 1984 named Max Palmer. And Max Palmer is the second largest and tallest professional wrestler who ever lived. He was also an actor in several science fiction films. And um, he was an inheritor of this anthropology. He was, by a very young age, he was already extremely tall and powerfully built. His mother had tests run to see if anything was wrong with him. He did not have any genetic disorder. And um, this individual uh, is a descendant of the tall ones in historic times. And there are photographs, there's video footage of him you can find on the internet. And... Uh, he also was a preacher. He called himself Goliath for Jesus Christ. So these are human beings. And for whatever the reason, this incredible genetic feature was a part of the Native American heritage. 
And it must go back to the original founding population of Native Americans tens of thousands of years ago because the remains of the Tall Ones have been found in the tombs of both the southern and northern branches uh, of Native American founders that split apart more than 10,000 years ago. That means that this heritage must go back to the first Native American ancestors to enter the United States. So we um, had a couple of people on before about, um, you know, crystals and stuff like that. And going back to what you said about um, special water, like with Ohio and Virginia, what's so, maybe you can answer this, so special about like the North and like Virginia and stuff? Because it seems like a lot of mythical creatures and um, just like crystals and powers are up in the Northern regions in, in Canada mm-hmm. and stuff. What's so special about the water up there? Because mm-hmm. you said they need special, special waters. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. The closer you get to the Great Lakes and the closer yeah. you get, the closer you get to the Atlantic Ocean, the more sacred and powerful and numinous the landscape becomes. And if you'll approach it with an open mind, even you yourself will experience it. There are, um, well, first, the reason. The reason is the Great Lakes area thousands of years ago, going back maybe eight or nine thousand years the Great Lakes region was a hotbed of the mythology of an entity that in Native American lore is known as the Great Horned Serpent or the Underwater Panther. There are two different forms of the same mythic being. Uh, the Ojibwa call him Mishibishu, but he has many different names in different language groups and cultures. And this being lives in the underworld, which is a vast underground ocean. And he enters into our domain in the earth world through lakes, streams, oceans, springs, everything that that has naturally occurring water, but especially the Great Lakes, because there in the Great Lakes is one of the world's largest ancient supplies of copper, and Mishibishu's scales are made of copper. He was believed to be the lord of all copper from the Great Lakes. And what happened about 3,000 years ago was that copper became the number one most sought after item in North America. We have exchange networks reaching from the Great Lakes all across North America, all the way south to Florida. And wherever the copper was transferred, the mythology of the underwater serpent, the great dragon who lived in the Great Lakes and who entered our domain through all of the the watery outlets in nature transferred with it. And for this reason, the, the ancient lakes and the rivers are endowed with a type of numinosity in the Native American mind. It's as if they became a mirror upon which the contents of the unconscious were projected in myth. That's crazy. I, I forgot the episode, Craig and Polly. It was like the um, the Michigan episode. You talked about the copper. The copper. Yeah, I was like, why copper? Like, what is so special about mm. copper? And now uh, you say the, copper again. I'm like, man, copper. The <laughs> copper. The copper was special because the copper was seen as a gift from the underwater serpent. Huh. It was it was believed to be a metal intimately connected with his power, and you must you have to realize that this being was believed to give 
long life, was believed to have the ability to bestow great medical powers, power over the hunt, but copper was also sacred to his adversaries, who are the Thunderbirds that live in the above world. And for 6,000 years or more, the Native American Algonquian people of the Great Lakes uh, have a tradition that when a great thunderstorm rages over the Great Lakes, that it is literally a conflict between the Thunderbirds and the Great Serpent from under the lakes. And for them, this conflict is real. It isn't happening in another world or dimension. It isn't happening between beings that you cannot see. They believe that they see these beings and that this conflict is literally unfolding in nature year by year. And this belief system was the same belief system that the mound builders attempted to write out in their earthworks. Uh, For example, in southern Ohio, uh, the great serpent mound in Ohio is an effigy of the underworld king, Mishavishu, the underworld serpent. Uh, There are several Hopewell mounds that we wrote about in our book that had gigantic stone effigies of thunderbirds under the mounds. So this cosmology is many millennia old, and in truth, You can see it reflected in every culture around the world. Uh, You'll find in every mythology and religious tradition around the world some story of an underworld serpent at war with a being uh, from on high that can take the form of a bird. We could talk about uh, Typhon and Horus in Egyptian mythology. We could talk about any number of mythologies. So it's probable that this is the oldest mythology on Earth. So what what's it going to take to get you to go, you know, live stream and go excavate one of these mounds? So that way they can't do anything about it. You know, it's live on air. You know, you're you're digging away out there like Oak Island. You know, Jason Gerald's version of the Oak Island. We're going to be at some burial mound as we're going through, and we're going to be in the third season. And you're going to finally find that little pinky bone. We're like, we'll, volunteer oh. to be your, we'll volunteer to be your camera crew. Yeah, well, you know that's. That's quite generous. As long as the swear jar stays open. Yeah, that's right. As long as the swear jar comes with us. But, um, you know, I have uh, my position on that. It it surprises a lot of people uh, because I don't believe in excavating any more Indian mounds than we already have for any reason. Simply for the fact that archaeologically, we have tens of thousands of these artifacts. We have hundreds and hundreds of radiocarbon dates. Uh, we have thousands of skeletal remains. I, I am not an advocate of any further excavations of these ancient graves because in the end, these are human beings. Uh, as I said before, you know, the, there have been DNA tests done. The issue is those DNA tests, in order to get access to them, I had to travel and go to actual university archives. They have not been published on the Internet So everyone that gets involved in this subject can't find them, but they have been done. These are Native Americans. These are these are human beings. And as far as finding the bones of a giant, they've already been found, photographed and acknowledged in the excavation reports of archaeologists for decades. You can read the book Mounds for the Dead by Don Dragoo or the Dover Mound site report by William S. Webb. 
any number of reports by George Fisher from Pennsylvania. Uh, the tall ones have the tall ones have already been discovered and acknowledged, and the idea that they're still missing or we need to prove they exist. Uh, this idea only exists because people don't realize the information that's actually out there. They're ignorant of the of the totality of what's been published in the literature. And uh, once you look at all the evidence out there, you realize that um, that that this information is already available. And uh, that's just one. Those are some of the reasons that I just don't. I'm not an advocate for excavating any more of these mounds. So are a lot of these sites protected or somebody could just build a house on it today? Are a lot of these <laughs> sites, what are these sites actually? Are they protected? Are people, private people own them? Or well, they're, protect, they're protected until Walmart wants to build over top of one, uh, which is what happened here in West Virginia recently. There was, a, there was an ancient burial site along the Kanawha River that had never been properly excavated. And a, a major retailer came in and built a store right on top of it against the protests of the local people. It happens all the time, but um, the laws are different from state to state. Uh, okay. If And in, in many places... In, yeah. It, well, in many places, if it's on your property, you can do what you want with it. Um, but, no longer haunted. Yeah. <laughs> so that so but, that site. So that site. Did you have a chance to excavate it, or Walmart just bought it and just tore it up? They bought it and tore it up. The the people were trying to protect the site, and it was destroyed. You see, in America, we. When it comes to the justice system, there are really two tiers. People with money can take advantage of this law as much as they can take advantage of any law. And especially in Ohio, you know, a lot of people who who don't realize that there's a real Native American identity to the mound builders are basing that on what archaeologists from Ohio say. And the reason the reason that the archaeologists in Ohio claim that they don't know uh, whose ancestors built the mounds is because as soon as you uh, attribute those mounds to a specific tribe, that tribe has exclusive right to decide mm -hmm. who has access to those mounds. And that's where their money comes from. You know, th and that's why I encourage people that, that are interested in this subject, look at the archeology span on the mounds that's being done in places outside of Ohio, because the anthropologists and archaeologists are teaming up with language experts and they're identifying uh, whose heritage this culture belongs to on a regular basis. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's stupid. I mean, we've seen movies and stuff building on top of ancient burial grounds. So, Nope, I'm good. <laughs> well, you Sorry. know, it's horrific think... accents always happen on the chip aisle, you know, that store. <laughs> <laughs> There's just something that goes on. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I, I, I a lot of things, man. I mean, down here in Florida, I, I used to work in the villages, um, and it's the villages. Every single day, they're moving. I think my father-in-law told me that they used to move a million yards of dirt a day. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fuel guy used to find at least 10 to 15 arrowheads a day. I mean, it's just well, crazy how we're tearing that, up, but we have no idea. That's because Florida was a hotbed of the Hopewell culture. In fact, if you ever go to the Crystal River Mounds, you'll be visiting a site of the culture we're talking about right now. 
Uh, you say Crystal River? Crystal yeah. River Mounds, yeah. I'll go on there in next July. I want to go check well, it out. That was built by the people we're talking about. And in, uh, in my next book, actually, I have several giants found in Florida and some of those oh. mounds that we'll be talking about. Uh, Cape Canaveral uh, was actually built on top of uh, a burial ground from which many large bones were found over the centuries. Interesting. Oh, wow, that's, that's pretty close to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, J- J- Jason, this uh, trade network was pretty extensive well it it reached all the way to yellowstone national park in the west and it stretched from um southern ontario to the coast of florida and all along the entire atlantic coast it was massive and it it wasn't just a trade network it was a way that people got along it's interesting that a lot of people believe that these that the giants were these warlike cannibalistic nephilim like (laughs) Nephilim-like creatures, but the fact is that the archaeological record tells us that during the time period of these cultures, there was a period of relative peace um, throughout uh, the Ohio Valley and and the Tennessee River Valley, and that's because the exchange network, you know, it allowed people to to commune with one another across large distances. There were marriages made uh, across long distances, friendships, and the youth, the youth were able to live the way that the ancient Greeks did in that you could follow these trails across the country to find objects which had some type of mythical association or power, such as obsidian from Yellowstone National Park or copper from southern Ontario. And then you could bring it home and you would, you would know for the rest of your life that you'd been to the lair of the water panther and claimed your copper. So the, the network that they lived in, uh, it, it was an extraordinary thing, especially because it shows what can be done without modern technology, I think. Yeah, I'm fairly new to the whole burial mound you know, phenomenon. So, so I, I just brought up a picture right here. This is that Crystal River archaeological site that you're talking about. This is one of the burial mounds down there. Huh. So do the, are these things typically laid out um, in a semi-standard format you know you, how you have like egyptian tombs i mean did they typically oh. experiments did they orient oh you know, the Div- burials in a certain way diversity is the number one rule when it comes to studying this culture because the local shaman the local burial priest had absolute autonomy to elaborate the rites of the dead in the way that the mounds were built uh, the oh, wow. uh, the Adina, the Adina Hopewell lived in what is called a heterarchical society. And in a heterarchical society, no one has permanent lasting power that uh, they wield over other people at all times. People hold different social roles that become activated when they're needed. <clears throat> and the designers and architects of the mounds were like that. So when it came time to design a mound, they were free to elaborate the formula however they wished. You know, we have some mounds in Kentucky where the uh, floor of the mound is stripped, covered in sacred clay, and then the cremated ashes of the dead are scattered together and intermingled on the floor of the mound, and then the mound is raised over that. Uh, In Charleston, West Virginia, they built large log cabin-like structures inside the mounds and placed the dead in a semicircle 
inside the uh, the log structure. Uh, so depending on which region we're in, we see different trends arise in burial because burial was the highest art form. The way that you buried your dead was the ultimate expression uh, of your creative instinct. Well, yeah, up here, so like here's some, like you said, these were these were renderings based on what you know they think that they could have looked like. <clears throat> so these are images that were created by uh, Marcia K. Moore, who is an artist that we partnered with for our book, and the uh, the images are based on actual artifacts that have been found with Adina and Hopewell burials. The one you're seeing right now, the bear costume, that is uh, a bear shaman. A figurine of this individual was found with a gigantic skeleton at the Newark Earthworks in Ohio. Uh, but all of the skulls and faces for these recreations are from photographs of actual Adina and Hopewell skulls. So the artist uh, was attempting with these images to recreate as accurate a, a profile as possible of what some of these people looked like. Uh, that's an Adina female from the right mound in Kentucky. So um, the male with the large horned headdress, now this is an interesting image because uh, the skull that was used for, for this image also came from the right mound in Kentucky, but the copper headdress comes from a Hopewell mound in southern Ohio, and that headdress was worn to represent the great horned serpent of the underworld that we were talking about earlier, and the copper gorget was probably an artifact that was somehow associated uh, with that motif as well. And the copper headdresses with the horns, some archaeologists believe that they were worn by shamanic priests who made sacrifices to the underworld powers so that the powers would not attack the living through the year because the underwater serpents were considered very malignant and dangerous creatures. They could cause plagues, floods, drownings. In fact, uh, by the time of European contact, the Native Americans had by and large attempted to avoid the great horned serpent, uh, the underwater serpent at all costs. It come to be regarded as a totally malignant being. So something must have happened between modern times and, and the time of the mound builders to sort of shake up the relationship between mankind and these powers. Yeah, uh, Jason, since... Uh, so since you've been you know, give, giving us uh, you know, a pretty detailed account of uh, the trade networks, you know, the uh, uh, copper, uh, you know, we know a, a lot of the uh, burials uh, had copper uh, bracelets on them. Uh, Okay, so we know, uh, you know some of the you know, structure of the society, um, but you know, were were the Adena people also involved with uh, you know, the archaeoastronomy <laughs> uh, 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 topic as well? Something you, tells you, me that you already know the answer to that question. Um, <laughs> the Adena. <laughs> 
<laughs> the Adina Hopewell were the greatest archaeoastronomers in the history of the world. Bill paid me to uh, give him a yeah. plug for his book. Right, right. Well, you can check out Bill's book. It's called The Archaeology of the Sacred by William Romaine, and it is the the best book you can ever read on the archaeoastronomy of the Adina Hopewell. And um, they, the Adina Hopewell, they constructed earthworks of circles, squares, and occasionally triangles, octagons, and other more abstract designs that were aligned to solar and lunar events. And that makes them unique because no other earthwork building culture in the eastern woodlands aligned their earthworks to the moon. There was something very important about the moon to the uh, Adena Hopewell in southern Ohio. In fact, at the Newark Earthworks at, in Licking County, uh, there's a massive circle, a gigantic octagon, and several other features that were built to track the cycle of the moon through the year. And one of the, the articles that we recently published was uh, about the, the significance of the moon to this culture. And we believe that it's probably because their chief deity was an ancient form of an Algonquian moon goddess named Cockamthena. And Cockamthena was the mistress of the land of the dead. The souls of the dead would return to her if they had a safe journey through the other world. And she was also the source of the souls of the newborn um, who were coming into the world of the living. And uh, we found that there are a great many burial sites where young children or young females are buried with crescent ornaments made of either copper or mica. mica. And um, so it could be that the archaeoastronomy is tied into this mythology of, of the ancient lunar goddess. But uh, long story short, the Adina Hopewell, the earthworks that they designed were, were created so that they interconnected over many, many miles. In fact, uh, Will Romaine has published research that suggests that the entire face of the state of Ohio may have been one gigantic interconnected earthworks complex that basically writes out the story of the journey of the soul after death on the earth. Okay. And Jason, people can read uh, your, your and Sarah's, uh, the Adina Hopewell moon unveiled parts one and two in ancient American ed editions 126 and 127. Yeah. And you can, you can also read um, a condensed version of that on our website, paradigm collision as well. Okay. I think we ha uh, have been putting that in the chat room. Yeah. We've had it scrolling on the bottom there. Okay. Collision. And the, the next edition of Ancient American that's coming out in December, we're publishing a small taste of the DNA research that we've been doing on this because there's a real need for this information to get out there with some of the theories that are being promoted about these people. It's sort of become our mission to rescue them uh, from the, uh, the idea that these are somehow related to the cannibalistic giants of biblical war. 
Um, so that some of that information will be in the in the next edition of Ancient American as well. Ancient Aliens has that effect on a lot of a lot of different. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting uh, that you mentioned Ancient Aliens because I did that show uh, several years ago, and the producer who I worked with and who Mark worked with, Mark was really Mark was really the person that made it happen because he's the most connected person uh, in radio. Yes. And uh, he is. He he knows everyone. I I think that he <laughs> might know Jared Kushner uh, also. But the when when I agreed to do that show, I had a conversation with the producer, and I said, "Listen, I don't even believe in the existence of extraterrestrials, but I will do the show uh, to share the evidence that I have with the rest of the world." And she was she was very understanding about that. And interestingly enough, they let that producer go eventually. And I think it might have been because she was too reasonable. Um, but uh, some of the evidence that we actually shared on the episode was we put on screen the handwritten notes of an agent of the Smithsonian measuring a gigantic skeleton in a burial mound here in Charleston, West Virginia. It's in his own handwriting. And uh, we actually reproduce that account in our book as well. So for people who don't believe that the Smithsonian did find these remains, I mean, the, the evidence is so overwhelming that I think you'd have to be blind not to see it. And that's, uh, that's one, you know, kind of teases that a little bit there, too. It's just for me, the Smithsonian, I mean, this is one, if it's already there, I mean, I would love to see these. The mounds? Yeah, well, the, not just the mounds, but some of the remains that have been found, you know, to show, you know, uh -huh. here's people that were potentially seven to eight feet tall. I mean, mm -hmm. this is something, you know, we've been told on that. Yeah, no, that was, like you said, this is just a junk pile that they buried. You know, this is. That's correct. They would use the term rubbish very often. Uh, with the, the bones, unfortunately, when the Smithsonian, I've, I don't know if you've ever visited the Smithsonian, but when you, when you go to the area where they keep these bones, unfortunately, it's a bunch of drawers, and they didn't bother to organize any of the bones or artifact by mound. So we have no real way of knowing which bones came from which mound. We simply know they came from Charleston. And Norris, the, the excavating agent who excavated the mounds in, eight, in 1884, we have obtained his personal diary that he wrote in every day of the excavations by his own hand. And the bones of the giants during the excavation were destroyed, except one of the skulls was actually shipped to the Smithsonian, I believe, or at least part of one of the skulls. So just because we see the Smithsonian document the remains, when you see a report that says that a giant skeleton has been found, that never means that there's a guarantee that the skeleton was recovered. The Most of the ancient remains that the Smithsonian recovered during the work of the Eastern Mound Division were so badly handled that they disintegrated or... Uh, they were thrown in the trash many times. The excavating agent would just throw them in a ditch. And th that actually happened in Georgia at some of the most important mounds there. There's a Mississippian era burial mound in Georgia where a gigantic skeleton approaching eight feet in height was found by a Smithsonian agent who simply threw the bones in the trash. Um, after they, yeah, that, that was their practice at the time. They were given a job 
They were given a limited time to do it. And the government gave them a limited amount of cash. And um, these were people mostly who had no interest in archaeology. They were just looking for a quick buck. And in many cases, it was nepotism. There were people who were related to ranking members in the Smithsonian hierarchy who needed a job. And so they were given the job of excavating ancient burial mounds. Quote, unquote, that's what they were told to do. Throw them in a ditch. <laughs> Is there any wonder that it's not, you know, the whole area isn't just... It's the hauntings, you know. It is right. Yeah, I mean, there's no wonder. I mean, you burial sites. I'm like, is is there any place that you basically can go now where bricks haven't been made with some ground? <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm like, oh my god, no wonder things fly off the walls. Well, you know, the fact is too that when it's not just the mounds, the Adina and Hopewell constructed these enclosures these large circular enclosures, usually with a single entryway. These are circular earth walls that represented, they're, they're basically a cross section of an axis mundi that connects the world above, the world we live in, and the world below us. And when you consider that a place like Charleston, West Virginia, there's an image there that Mark's holding up. That's a map of Charleston, West Virginia's uh, circular hinges. These circular hinges were cross sections of a sacred tree that the shamans would travel to the underworld and to the heavens and commune with the souls of the dead. So if you're a superstitious person, it may be a bad idea to completely obliterate them and then to lay concrete on top of them. Um, so if you're into the supernatural, I would, uh, my advice to you would be to get a copy of the Smithsonian's reports and then find the cities that have been built over these ancient sites and investigate there. Huh. Yeah, there's different, you know, like I said, the different ones. Like, Yeah, those are, they represent the, in this ancient cosmology, the earth was considered a flat disk, an island that floated on top of the primordial sea of the underworld. And the circular hinge containing the flat disc inside was considered the dome or barrier that covers over and surrounds the earth island. And the shamanic belief system was that these places are places where uh, in altered states of consciousness, one could ascend and descend the tree that connects different worlds and interact with the beings that are there which includes the Thunderbirds, the Great Serpents, and the Souls of the Dead. Uh, in the case of the Newark Earthworks in Ohio, we have put forth the theory now that that site may have been a communal site where the shaman would reach out, and maybe hundreds of people at a time would reach out to the moon goddess, Cochamthena. So destroying these sites and building houses on top of them is probably... Probably not a good idea. No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> no, uh, wow. I uh, yeah, I'm just uh, buyers beware. You know, you might want to do a little history work. You know, contact oh, absolutely. Yeah, go to paradigmcollision.com and just you know write write Jason and Sarah. It's like, hey, I'm looking to buy this house right here. <laughs> what do you think? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. If you look at certain places like the area here in Charleston. There were between eight and 10 sacred temples 
and between 40 and 50 burial mounds. Today, all that's left of that are three burial mounds. And one of those burial mounds has European graves intruded into the top of it. So here's an ancient Adena burial mound with uh, the tombstones of white settlers intruded into the top of it in the corner of a cemetery in Charleston. The largest surviving mound in Charleston uh, sits on D Street and you can go there any time of the year and watch people let their kids play on the mound and, and tear pieces of it out and ride sleighs up and down the mound during Christmas time. And, uh, you know, for, for someone like myself, you know, that's a, that's a really sacred part of history because I have a, a great deal of respect and admiration for the Native American traditions and cosmology. And I, I feel like they've taught me a lot through my research. And uh, so it's, um, it's an issue. And you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a form of great sacrilege uh, to rampantly destroy something like that and then to build some modern behemoth on top of it. When you look at what we build today, it, it's as if the greatest skill we can come up with is to create a rectangular concrete block. You know, and we think that that must be better than what was there before. But uh, in many cases, when it comes to the ancient cultures, that's just not true. So who owns that piece of land off of D Street that you were just referring to? The city. It's a public oh. park. Oh, yeah, it's a public. They built a park. They built a park there. Uh, uh, Craig has one of the photos or a couple of the photos. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually the mound uh, where we shot uh, the Ancient Aliens episode. And the the Smithsonian account that we have in our book talks about a skeleton that was close to seven feet tall being found in this mound as well. That's that it. Yeah, there's a, uh, there was a, a timber hinge, a giant post circle of timbers under this mound, and there were 11 burials under the mound. Ten, ten of the burials were in a semicircle around the, uh, the large burial, and the large burial had a copper crown or a headdress, some sort of copper object worn on the skull. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, Jason, you discussed you know, these log cab or the mounds were built around, uh, you know, like the three samples of log cabins uh, that were found under the mounds. Um, uh, you know, there's, uh, you, know, you know, we kind of j just touched on some of the engineering, you know, the, uh, they, uh, the trade networks were really extensive. You know, they, they knew how to uh, uh, navigate over long distances and haul uh, stuff from, uh, you said, like Yellowstone Park and... Obsidian. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, there's evidence from uh, uh, coming up from Florida, uh, but you know, also in your Ages of the Giants books, you, you, know, you cover some of the engineering projects, uh, like you know the parallel uh, walls that uh, maybe there was some kind of road uh, leading into. 
um, the, the the Charleston area. Um, yeah. Can can you tell us a little bit about you know? Yeah. Not all the engineering uh, was focused on just the mounds. Well, no. The in fact, uh, here in Charleston, you know, I mentioned the fifty mounds in Charleston on both sides of the river. Well. The, in the notebooks of Norris, the agent of the Smithsonian that actually saw this site, he wrote about a type of a sacred pathway that connected the mounds that was made of a very hard clay. And this clay pathway actually at the cross sections was marked by megalithic stones with petroglyphs. And we have no idea what those stones looked like. We have no idea what the petroglyphs were like, except that it included holes, because this information was deleted from the Smithsonian's official account. So the sites, when you see these ancient maps of these sites, just know that there was more there uh, than what's even in the published account. There's a lot that's been lost. So... In my opinion, I think that these sacred landscapes were probably being built to intentionally reflect either constellations or patterns in the stars, or they were literally meant to be recreations of the land of the dead. So you have different locations that are marked with sacred stones, uh, sacred pathways, the most common way that the sacred pathways were created in Ohio is through raising parallel walls of earth that usually mark an important sunrise or moonrise location because the cycles of the sun and the moon were so integral to their archaeoastronomy. <clears throat> Jason, with, with all these um, uh, what, uh, public works you know, you know, to build Roads, ceremonial paths. Um, it, um, you know, we we know there are, uh, you know, the mounds line a sixty miles both sides of a sixty mile stretch of a um, a river. You know, these you know there are these roads, and you also get uh, the pathways uh, going from a river uh, to a mound um is there some kind of uh you know, re reliable estimate to uh gauge the size of the population i mean you have to have a pretty large labor force to uh engineer these kind of structures well, the, the population size is very difficult to determine because of the cremation practices. Okay, that's an but, issue. Yeah. But the, the largest mounds, it's important to remember, some of the Adena mounds are 30 or even 70 feet high. Um, the, the populations that built the mounds built them up over generations. So you're going to have a burial event where... Multiple tribes and families converge at the same place to bury their dead in the same mound, and then they're going to disperse 
And then we don't know how much time could pass before the decision is made to put more of their dead in the same mound. In some cases, uh, we have mounds that can date all the way back to the Archaic period, to 1500 BC, and then there are burials made as recently as 1700 years ago. Uh, so the mounds are built by accretion in many cases. And when it comes to designing earthworks and mounds, we know that these were multiple community projects. The people would gather from, from, a, widely, from a wide area, multiple tribes, multiple people would come together to the same place to build these earthworks and mounds. But these are people who otherwise may have spent most of the year dispersed and separate from one another. So whatever form their actual belief system took, the gathering together to periodically build these structures was an integral part of it. And we know that because what well, one reason we know there have been some really good studies done on the mounds in Kentucky uh, in which it, the archaeologists have, have basically come to the conclusion that when multiple communities buried their dead together in a single mound, they were adopting a common ancient ancestry. So if you buried your, your loved one in the same mound that another family buried their loved one, you were then of the same ancestry as them. The dead in the other world were now a family, and that meant that you in this world were now a common family. And in fact, that means that these mounds were probably the origin uh, of the tribal unit as we understand it here in the eastern woodlands. And that's a, unfortunately, I said we're going to have to make that the stopping point right there. I just looked, we were, we're running out of time. It's, it's <laughs> gone that quick. Uh, everybody just you need to go to um paradigmcollision.com um it's also through is it lulu is that the where book, yeah the book is published through lulu.com that's l-u-l-u.com and it's ages of the giants a cultural history of the tall ones in prehistoric america by jason terrell and it's sarah farmer everybody go to their site check it out purchase that book get more information on this uh a fascinating topic. Um, apologize, I had to cut you, you know, had to stop you right there. We could have kept going, but I just want to thank you for coming on. We had a great time. I hope you enjoyed yourself. And, you know, luckily we didn't have to add to Chris's swear jar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so, for having me. Thank you for oh, having yeah, me. I said, well, um, we'll be in touch because I definitely am, you know, especially as we're going through all these topics we keep getting these overlays and um definitely we're gonna probably need to have you back on for your expertise uh, in the future okay i'll be glad to do it thank yeah i'm looking forward to, um looking forward to checking out your book so th thanks again jason i really appreciate you coming on and have a great night and we'll talk soon yes you too thank you thanks jason so everybody go to paradigm collision.com there it is it's up on the screen there um go check out check out their book um amazing work um very well researched very well done um you will not you know you'll you'll definitely get the information that we weren't able to get to here on our time and as always mark eddie thank you so much thank you. You know, for anybody that you know go support him and barbara delon on nightlights 
You can see them on YouTube. Go subscribe to that channel. Go watch his shows. Give him a hard time. Mention, you know, Chris's swear jar, and he'll know exactly where you saw him from. <laughs> yeah. But Mark, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, th thanks for the opportunity. It was fun. Uh, I, I enjoy working with the three of you. Thank you. Thank we you. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a great time. So, yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk here soon. Like I said, we'll wrap this up. So, everybody, go sponsors Brots Beard Care. Go with Kelly Kelly Brot makes an amazing product. Brotsbeardcare.com. Use promo code Three Beards with a capital B. You're going to save twenty percent off your entire order on beard soap, oils, comb, you name it. Shipping. Go to Nanny Cakes. 407 on Facebook or give her a call at 407-923-2898. Amazing cake products here in the Central Florida area. You're going to save 15% off. I just mentioned that you know us three bearded crazies. And that is an amazing deal. Outside the Central Florida area, you're going to get amazing tasting whatever comes to you. But it hey. anything like you ordered it, but I guarantee it'll taste amazing. So it's good. Yeah. And by the three way, beard. and by and by the way, oh. if you don't have a beard, you can go dust them chap lips off with Kelly Brotts chaps chapstick um winter's coming up so make sure you dust them lips yeah you got hand soap too foam and hand soap there you go threebeardspodcast.com go to patreon.com forward slash we gotta get in order man because you always skip around i do it just to mess with you i'm trying <laughs> all right everybody thank you for watching appreciate it thanks again jason gerald for coming on the show mark eddie thank you again for getting us in touch with him Everybody have a great night. Appreciate you watching. Thank you and good night. Good night.